Holy hell and hallelujah, Higher Side Chatters. Are you aware? Did you know? Have you seen the memo? The Higher Side Chats is finally doing a live podcast. Tell them about it, Bill. Okay, I don't know. Whatever it is, it's not right on a teleprompter. I don't know what that is. I've never seen that. Oh, it's right, Bill. Believe it. I know it's something new, but I'm actually doing a live podcast with Ryan Davis and Sam Tripoli from Tinfoil Hat. What does that mean? Well, we're going to do a live podcast from the stage at the Ice House Comedy Club in Pasadena. Me, Sam, Ryan, and what seems like a pretty exciting list of rotating comics. Just read them the information. I can't read it. There's no There's no words on it. All right, I can do it. All right, go, go. In five, four, three. Folks, the Higher Side Chats, in conjunction with the Tinfoil Hat Podcast, Sam Tripoli, Ryan Davis, and myself are doing a live show on October 10th at the Ice House Comedy Club in Pasadena. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, despite the chemtrail-laden skies, despite the potential for low-frequency electromagnetic wave mind manipulation, I, Greg Carlwood, am slinking out of my deep, dark San Diego compound to step out into the light and talk to real, live human beings. For you, dear people. We're going to be drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and rocking a conspiratorial roundtable like I've never done before. And I need you, is what I'm saying. Please come join the party. And again, October 10th at 10 p.m. for only $10. Oh, you better believe that magic is real. IceHouseComedy.com for tickets, and I'll see you there. Fucking thing sucks! Let's hope not, Bill. Let's hope not. Almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something There beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested Every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know The less you really do That's true, Dr. Sayers Where would we be without THC? Side Chatters, we have spent several shows examining the symbols and subtext behind Hollywood films, enough to know that many of them contain some deep messages and archetypes, from the embodiment of the monomyth and the hero's journey, to messages of alchemical transformation and the encoding of esoterica galore. Sometimes we learn to see our favorite movies in a new light, or discover meaningful messages we didn't pick up on beforehand, and for my money, there are few cinema symbolism solvers like today's returning guest, Robert W. Sullivan IV. If you don't recall, on top of being a best-selling author, Robert is also a lawyer, mystic, philosopher, and proud 32nd-degree Scottish Rite Freemason. He's been here twice before, initially breaking down his book, The Royal Arch of Enoch, which explains that all-important ritual and examines other areas of Masonic influence, philosophy, and symbolism. And then he came back on the release of his second book, Cinema Symbolism, where we talked about the messages in Back to the Future, Fight Club, Wizard of Oz, The Dark Knight, and several others. And now Robert is back in the saddle for a third time as we get into his latest work, Cinema Symbolism 2, Electric Boogaloo. And we're going to tackle some new instances of 8mm magic. So let's get down to it. The great celluloid cryptographer and symbol solver of the silver screen, Robert, my man. Welcome back to the higher side. Oh my goodness, Greg. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. 
I think out of all the podcasts and radio shows and TV shows I've ever been on, I think you just hit a grand slam for the best introduction I've ever received. That was absolutely fabulous. Cinema Symbolism 2, Electric Boogaloo, I should have definitely considered that as a title or subtitle. Thank you so much for having me on the Higher Side Chats. It's always a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to the broadcast today. Absolutely, man. Too kind. And I, I definitely love to have a little fun with those intros. I feel like you got to get people psyched up in that first 30 seconds because there's a lot of stuff out there trying to get their attention. So you want them to stick with a show and a good introduction helps them do that. And it is great to have you back, man. I really love the symbolism breakdown of films. I think it's a great way for people to learn about things like that hero's journey and seemingly internal archetypes that embody almost all of them. And I also think that when you see the depth and detail that goes into the messaging behind certain films, it sort of sharpens your eye for these things in other areas of life. And personally, I love being able to justify all that time sitting in front of the television. But let me kick this off by asking you about the value of this overall examination. Obviously, you've studied myth and symbols in more ways than one, and it can just be good fun. But beyond that, what do you really think people would get out of this or what do you get out of it? Yeah, I mean, for me, I just think it's a fascinating study. I really think it's really a new medium that's being created. Movies are becoming mythology. You will see this, you know, with clearly movies such as Star Wars, where, I mean, this is, you know, just permeated material culture on so many levels. I mean, now we have a day named after this, you know, May the 4th, mm -hmm. May the 4th with you. I mean, and cinema is just such a powerful form of media. It's just interesting to see. I mean, this goes back in time. I mean, you know, you get the printing press and you find hidden messages and meanings in the works of Shakespeare. And then you get into operas with Mozart and the magic flute and certainly an Egyptian influence and the Illuminati and Masonic overtones with that play and, you know, with that opera. And then cinema comes along and, you know, here we go again. And even from cinema's early inception, we have movies such as Metropolis which, you know, is a silent film that is overloaded with Gnostic and occult symbolism and themes. And, you know, going through the ages, you know, the decades where you get into movies like Frankenstein with Gollum creation and Dracula, and then you get into the James Bond stuff and the Wizard of Oz. And it's just movies have become such a powerful influence in material culture. I think it's a fascinating study to see the lengths and how this esoteric great arcana turns up in film. And it's something that, like I said, I won't belabor the question. It's something that began for me with the Royal Arch of Enoch, just decoding and deciphering this Masonic symbolism, philosophy, and lore, and how much it permeated society, especially here in the United States. And then to discover you know, it in movies, and then you get this different layers of movies with, like you said, archetypes and numbers and esoteric themes and the monomyth and the occult. It's a fascinating study for me, and I'm real happy to say that I share this fascination with a lot of people because, you know, the books sell at any rate. Heck yeah, man. And you added a lot of great new movies to the pile in this latest collection. And one guy I was really interested to see in there was Alan Moore. Of course, he's written the source material for V for Vendetta and The Watchmen, two movies I'm a huge fan of, although I think he protested turning his stuff into films. But still, uh, what can you say about the man and the contents of his work? Interesting guy, right? Oh, absolutely. Moore is a neo-Gnostic and a neo-pagan and an occultist. And this is Moore I'm speaking about. I mean, he is very anti-Christian. You know, he is not a fan of the Abrahamic faiths. And this turns up in his work. You know, I dissected three movies in Cinema Symbolism 2, the two you mentioned, and then the third one was From Hell, which deals with a lot of alchemical, Freemasonic, veiled overtones in it. But yeah, the guy is very esoteric and, you know, into the occult. 
So why wouldn't it turn up in his films? No surprise there. I know that in some instances he's not a fan of the material. And, and it gets into this interplay of, I get asked this all the time, is you know when a movie is based on the work of an author, does the movie sometimes take on a life of its own or do they use the author's work? And clearly with Alan Moore, you know, you'll find the occult symbolism within the comics without question. And yeah, he's an interesting character and they're interesting movies. And I have a whole chapter on Alan Moore. So if you're interested in his material and his movies, by all means, read Cinema Symbolism too. Mm-hmm. And I kind of vibe with the guy because he seems like a anti-authoritarian or anti-corporate type of guy. He probably doesn't like the materialism. Oh, of, you know, his work being used in that way. And of course, that Guy Fox mask is now a huge pop culture meme that probably wouldn't be there if it weren't for the movie. And uh, that definitely has affected and cheapened to me my love for the film a little bit because you just hate to see that kind of stuff co-opted in that way. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He is definitely anti-corporate. He's anti-government. I believe he has stated that he's an anarchist. Mm. And clearly in movies like V for Vendetta, you will have this Gnostic rebellion against government. I mean, you have the whole play on Adam and Eve, Evie, Adam Sutler, the head of Norsefire, England. The symbol for Norsefire, England is, I think it's the Cross of Lorraine, the Knights Templar. So it's this oppressive Christian right wing government. And of course, this is something that he would have great derision for. I like it in V for Vendetta, where the name of the tower where the Norsefire government, you know, the propaganda machine is the Jordan Tower. I mean, that's a clear reference to the Jordan River, critical to the Abrahamic faiths of Christianity and Judaism. So there you find an example of Moore's disdain for those two religions. Absolutely. The whole interplay with the mask, you know, the movie revolves around the Guy Fox gunpowder plot. That's interesting as well. Many people may not know that, like you said, the mask has taken on a life of its own to be the symbol of anonymous and sort of anti-government symbolism. What's very interesting in this is the Guy Fox was actually that the gunpowder plot was actually a Jesuit conspiracy to topple the English government. This was all part of the counter-reformation. So when you see those Guy Fox masks turning up from V Vendetta, you're actually looking at pretty much a Jesuit symbol. So the irony is so thick, you could really cut it with a knife. But, you know, that's how all this works. It's subterfuge. It's cell within a cell. It's reaction and counter-reaction or reaction and then anti-reaction in this case. It's an interesting symbol. It's an interesting movie. Loads of Gnostic overtones in it. And, you know, by all means, definitely check out V for Vendetta. It's a great film. And like I said, it was a pleasure to take it on in uh, Cinema Symbolism too. Yeah, and as much as I like that movie and as many times as I've seen it, you do point out a lot that I can't believe I never really noticed, like the way you break down the characters. You kind of mentioned that earlier, but you know, Evie Hammond is symbolically Eve going through the transformation to Lilith that the tyrannical dictator, his name is Adam in the film, that he would be the embodiment of the Demiurge. It's like a very Gnostic thing kind of to take characters from the old myths and twist them around and put them in different roles, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. You clearly have, you know, the Demiurge-like dictator, Adam Sutler. Then you have the Luciferian light bearer of V coming into the sort of Norse fire Garden of Eden seducing Eve or Evie, providing her with the forbidden Gnostic fruit of enlightenment. I like it how she has to go through. This is very Gnostic. This is Valentinian cosmology, how she sort of rebels against the government. I mean, you think of Sophia's rebellion against the monad or this Gnostic alien intelligence. And, you know, Sophia is cast down in matter and Evie is cast out and has her head shaped. But then she goes through this illusionary transformation where she believes she's dying and she ultimately receives gnosis from V, but it's all an illusion. 
And again, this ties into Gnostic themes of what is real, what is false. Think the Matrix, thinks the Truman Show. And then I really like it. I mean, you have this really deep symbolism. And, and the movie that I keep coming back to, this is Blade Runner, where it's raining out. Evie, much like Ray, Rick Descartes, ascends the building. We have the ascension. It's pouring down rain. We have the baptism. And then through with the Nexus 6, with Roy Batty, Descartes finally receives gnosis that the androids or the Kabbalistic golem Nexus 6s are deserving of life. And then you'll find this in V for Vendetta, where she realizes that Norsefire England is no good. And she sort of is baptized by V into his nihilistic mission to destroy it. So you have this interplay with Gnostic receiving of Gnosis. Absolutely. It's a great religious tale. V for Vendetta is. And yeah, loads of esoteric allegory going on inside that film. Right. And the kind of process that V puts Evie through is quite lifted from mystery school traditions, right? I mean, it's like simulated suffering or fear inducing for the sake of rising above or developing spiritual armor. I mean, that's kind of the point of those things, right? Oh, that's absolutely right. I mean, you'll find this in even themed movies, you know, Gnostic themed movies or initiation into the mysteries, the suffering, the anti-materialism, the anti-consumerism, the suffering. You know, you think of the Matrix where they live in poverty on the cramped spaceship, you know, they give up the materialism of the false reality, but the real world is no good. They're all impoverished. And it's certainly anti-consumerism. Certainly you even think of something like The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy has to go through this magical adventure to receive gnosis at the end of that. Evie Hammond has this mental breakdown, like you said, to be able to wear the spiritual armor. Even Alice in Wonderland has this sort of theme where the little girl goes to the magical wonderland, braves the you know Red Queen, the Queen of Hearts, and comes out more enlightened and better for it. Truman Burbank in The Truman Show, same thing, goes on a journey in the boat, which almost kills him to eventually be able to leave the false world, receive Gnosis. So absolutely, with Evie Hammond, this is no different. This is all very Gnostic, very religious. And in the case of Moore, he is very, like you said, anti-establishment, anti-Christian. So it's a takedown of the established order, it's a takedown of the Christian right wing, Norsefire England, and Moore and the filmmakers pull it off marvelously in V for Vendetta. Mm-hmm. And it does seem ultimately to be a positive message confronting the power structure, rising up to topple tyrants. I mean, <laughs> I'm on that page. And I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about The Watchmen, because there are certain movies that get talked about pretty routinely in these sorts of conversations, but Watchmen really is not one of them. And you added a lot of context that I never really thought about, mainly surrounding the Mr. Manhattan character. Can you talk to us a little bit about him and the depth there that people might not realize? Right. Well, the Dr. Manhattan character is very interesting. He undergoes sort of, you know, what you would call Kabbalistic apotheosis. He becomes a godlike savior. He's the Christ archetype in this movie who's literally delivering the United States, sort of the savior of the United States. I mean, even when he becomes Dr. Manhattan, I believe he rises cruciform in front of the sun. So we have the whole Christ as sun allegory going on with that. And then, you know, I mean, there's a lot of interesting things surrounding Dr. Manhattan. Of course, he's named after the Manhattan Project, which is the development of the nuclear weapons. And of course, you know, he's one of these guys, I mean, there's a whole dualistic interplay with him. He's a very deistic figure in this. Of all the Watchmen, I mean, he is clearly the godlike figure of all of them. I mean, he returns from the warlike planet Mars, where he's hiding out to deliver peace to the world. And of course, this is all part of Ozymandias's grand conspiracy to kill millions to save billions. I mean, great, you know, conspiracy fodder there. 
very interesting character. He undergoes literally the whole alchemical transformation. I mean, he starts out as the one doctor and then through the nuclear experiment, literally goes through Kabbalistic apotheosis where he becomes Christ-like, has all the superpowers, can save people, can save the United States, can see the future. Very interesting character. A lot going on inside of Watchmen. Loads of interplay with the names on these guys. I mean, more really delves into the whole conspiracy world there. You know, we have the one villain, Moloch, who conjures the Moloch figure at Bohemian Grove. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole interplay of the anti-hero, of the heroes being the bad guys. Very conspiratorial. It's a great movie. I took on three of Alan Moore movies in Cinema Symbolism, too. So if you're interested in Alan Moore, by all means, you're going to love the book. Mm -hmm. And you also, as you talk about Mr. Manhattan... You say that it relates to a specific third-degree Blue Lodge ritual. Do you think that's an intention on Moore's part? Or I guess, well, yeah, in the source material, he's blue too. But do you think he's blue as a clue to that? Well, I don't know if the blue is, but what's interesting with Dr. Manhattan is the symbol he picks for himself is the point within the circle. And that is a clear Masonic symbol representing the sun. It's a Masonic symbol from start to finish. And what I think it's denoting in that is the initiation into this Kabbalistic apotheosis, which is part of Masonic ritual. You know, the whole purpose of the Blue Lodge ritual is you're undergoing consciousness expansion, divine spark ignition. And then, you know, Manhattan picks for himself this great Masonic symbol. I mean, probably other than the square encompasses with the letter G in it, you know, one of the most noted or easy to see Masonic symbols is the point within the circle. And he even says he wanted a symbol that was worthy of me. So he, there's clear intent there. And I, I like it, you know, it's the whole idea, you get into masonry and then you get into the high degree mason system with the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, where the whole idea is the royal arch symbolism, where it's possession of the tetragrammaton, where the candidate becomes godlike. It's, it's literally a form of Kabbalistic apotheosis. So to see these Masonic overtones going on inside of Alan Moore, who's an occultist and is very well versed with this, it is not surprising or alarming. But I just thought that was very apropos to have this Masonic symbol, this initiation into the mysteries where Manhattan has become this Christ-like savior. Very fascinating, very intentional. And it certainly works in the Masonic context. I have little doubt about that. Mm -hmm. And the nexus of science and esoterica comes up at several points in your book. And I think that connection seems more recognizable than ever. And it's funny because we think of science as the polar opposite of the occult or the mysteries. But when you have the context that you do, we see it quite often in scientific circles in the real world, don't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you definitely have this merger of science and magic going on. I mean, you have it even with Watchmen, with the Dr. Manhattan character being a sorcerer. Absolutely. You have it in movies. You'll find it in the horror movies, Halloween 3, which is really one of the first movies to fuse witchcraft with computer science. Another movie that was an early version of this, I think that came out the year before, maybe two years before Halloween 3, was a movie called Evil Speak, where the protagonist used a computer to conjure the devil, to enter satanic rites on the computer. So you will have this fusion of science and the occult. And you find it in movies like, you'll find it with the Dr. Manhattan character, where he's very mystical. He's very prophetic. I mean, he's not just a scientist. He really is sort of this esoteric figure, this Christ-like magician, as it were. But yeah, I mean, even as I was writing the book, you will clearly find in films such as, you know, Halloween 3, didn't get probably as much recognition when it first came out, but the movie has definitely undergone a bit of a renaissance of late. And another movie was Evil Speak. You know, if you haven't seen that one, that deals with conjuring the devil using satanic rites to enter him into a computer. 
very interesting dark movie, very satanic. So yeah, you know, the fusion of science and the occult, fascinating subject in modern cinema. Mm-hmm. And also just to get into the real world a little bit, you talk about CERN in a couple different places, also noting the Shiva statue there and that imagery embodies and invokes some kind of scary ideas about universal destruction and rebirth. They obviously are kind of the height of science and they know their symbols and mythology. Is that concerning at all to you? I mean, there's a lot of researchers talking about it. I know that's not exactly your forte, but do you worry about kind of the things that they're showing us and their symbolism and what they might be trying to do there? Yeah, I mean, the Shiva statue at CERN, the cosmic dancer, the death and rebirth, it's definitely sort of, I I mean, I agree with you. I think it is a little disturbing. You know, when you get into CERN, that's another interesting topic that I get into in the book. And certainly you'll clearly find that in the movie Stargate, where you will clearly have this CERN-like operation going on to open the Stargate, open the portal, the interdimensional portal that takes them to the other planet. I will just point out real quick that that also is very Freemasonic. There are uncanny parallels with the movie Stargate, with another Masonic movie called The Man Who Would Be King, which is a Rudyard Kipling novella. Kipling was a Freemason. But yes, you know, the stuff going on at CERN, the atom splicing, the idea of opening up a wormhole is very disconcerting. And, you know, it is worrisome. You never know what's going to happen with this stuff. I mean, and, you know, you you try to hope that they're going to be careful with it, but you never know. And I think it's interesting that statue is there. I mean, the whole death and rebirth. Let's hope they know what they're doing. But (laughs) certainly you do worry about potentially opening a portal and, you know, bringing in some sort of trans-dimensional being of some kind. Who knows? Hope for the best, expect the worst. Right, right. Right, yeah. It is just that classic story where it seems like we have man in the Demiurge's persistent illusion, and then we have a Luciferian-type character who wakes man up and elevates them to rise up against their tyrannical overlord. But the way the Orthodox interprets that story is that that's the point where the demiurge comes through and wipes the slate clean and then you have the noah story and that kind of stuff and it is kind of interesting to see those parallels in modern science and technology and you hear the orthodox people say oh well technology is the mark of the beast and on one hand i just roll my eyes and i'm like you know that isn't really a very nuanced understanding but then you see us all addicted to technology and how it's used as the surveillance state's main mechanism, that it has some real dark implications underneath it, but we are all kind of adopting it. And it is just interesting to think about the times we're in, in relation to that classic story of rising up against the creator God, whether it be a good or bad figure. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. And, you know, the the whole idea of rising up against the false God, that is, and like you said, you know, it, it depends on the movie. You watch a movie like The Matrix, where Neo stands up to the machines and the archons and is able to defeat them. And certainly you think of a movie like The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy Gale stands up to the evil wizard and exposes him and has her Gnostic epiphany. And, you know, Alice in Alice in Wonderland stands up to the evil Red Queen, has her Gnostic epiphany, returns home and is all the better off for it. The technology in Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland is somewhat of an absent element. That's the word I'm looking for. But in something like The Matrix, the technology is both good and bad. It is both liberating and oppressive. And it's an interesting interplay. Like you said, the technology can be the mark of the beast, but it can also be very liberating. You know, it can be used for positive as well. So it just depends on the, it's like a symbol almost. It just depends on the author's creation and what they intend for it. A symbol can be negative. It can be positive. The same symbol can be positive or negative. 
depending upon the you know intent of the designer. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting interplay. And it definitely plays out in cinema, no question about it, whether it be movies like The Matrix or The Wizard of Oz, you know, the whole initiation into the mysteries or rising up against the demiurge and Gnostic themes. By all means, I don't disagree with that. Mm. And so to get back into the book a little bit, another very layered aspect of Hollywood that you have picked up on in the past and even more so now is this aspect of actor selection that you call occult casting. Let's get into that a little bit. What do you think is behind it? Maybe give us some good examples of it. Absolutely. This is a great question. I'm so glad you brought this up. This is something that's very interesting that's going on in film. And when I first started noticing this, I thought this was limited. I thought this was an exception, not the rule. I have come to understand that this is a little more widespread than at first I anticipated. And it started with me. I'll just give a bit of a brief background. What the first book I wrote was, was Cinema Symbolism. And we talk about you know, occult symbols in movies and numbers and, you know, hidden themes, the monomyth, the alchemical journey, all this good stuff. But, you know, it's very deep and it goes much beyond that. You know, you can get into music, you can get into poster art when it contains that occult imagery. Believe it or not, you can actually get into the release date of movies, can have occult meanings. So, you know, how about the actual actors and actresses that portray these, that turn up in movies? And the answer is the actual actor and actress can be used to convey occult meanings. And what it is doing, it's beyond typecasting. It's using the actor or actresses, what I call cultural valances, this esoteric baggage they bring from one movie to the next. And it's done intentionally. And it's really cinematic sorcery. It's done to conjure to your subconscious mind these earlier roles that the actor has been in. And it invests the new movie with these arcane themes and images. So the first movie that I noticed with this was the second Matrix movie called The Matrix Reloaded. And this is something I talked about in the first book, where in that movie, the character of, I think he's one of the uh, chancellor or councilman, I, I can't remember the character's name, it's portrayed by Anthony Zerby. And there's a whole great scene in this movie where Anthony Zerby, as the councilman of Zion, is lecturing Neil about how Zion is the last bastion of humanity and how it all has to be protected and preserved. And I remember watching this. I thought, I've seen this before. I've heard this all before. And and eventually it hit me like a bolt of lightning that this is Anthony Zerby is reiterating and is actually repeating almost verbatim lines that he had delivered earlier in a movie from 1971 called The Omega Man. Only it was reversed in that movie, The Omega Man. Zerby played a character known as Matthias, and he gives this lecture to some of his disciples about how the Charlton Heston character was the last bastion of mankind, how it needed to be eradicated, how it needed to be destroyed. And it was this complete reversal of dialogue going on from the Omega Man to the Matrix. So why do that? Well, the Matrix movies are very Gnostic, and part of Gnosticism is dualism, reversal, opposites, the unification of opposites you know, man and woman, male and female, light and darkness, sun and moon, Manichaeanism. So to cast Zerbi in this is conjuring this earlier film. And by reversing it, it's reinforcing this Gnostic interplay that all the Matrix movies are relying on. They're exploiting Gnosticism. You turn to another movie. The next movie I really noticed this in was the latest Star Wars movie, the episode seven, Force Force Awakens. That's it. Where Max von Sydow, of all things, turns up as a brief cameo at the very beginning of this, and it kind of just struck, I'm sitting there watching and I'm watching it a couple of times on Blu-ray here. And I remember just thinking to myself, you know, why cast Von Cito in this part? This is only five minutes at the very beginning of the movie. This could have been cast by, anyone could have portrayed this, but they seem to have wanted Von Cito in this. 
and it struck me like a bolt of lightning. Again, I'm watching this opening sequence where Von Cito comes out and confronts the dark evil Lord Kylo Ren and is struck down. And all of a sudden, I'm just sitting there and it's, where have I seen this all before? And of course, it immediately comes to me. It's the exorcist. It's the opening sequence of the exorcist where Max Von Cito as the hermit figure the Jesuit priest, and again, he's the hermit figure in episode seven, is on the desert planet. And again, in the exorcist, he's in the desert and confronts the dark evil Lord, the statue of Pazuzu in the desert. And this is exactly what happens with episode seven, where he confronts Kylo Ren in the desert. Kylo Ren strikes him down. And it's this entire interplay. It's conjuring the exorcist to your subconscious mind. So why do this? It's literally implanting the whole opening sequence of the exorcist, and it's investing Kylo Ren and the First Order with the demonism of Pazuzu. It's very occult. This is very close to sorcery as you can find in modern day by using these actors and actresses. And I was watching it again, and it also conjures another movie. It conjures the movie Dune, where Von Cito, again, on the desert planet as the hermit figure, is struck down by the vicious Dark Lord, Baron Harkonnen. And again, it's another interplay. It's another cultural valance that by casting Von Cito, it's influencing and implanting in your subconscious mind with Dune, that it's investing the First Order with the savagery of the Harkonnens. So this is very adroit, what these filmmakers are doing. And I've seen other examples of this. I talk about the casting. I'll leave it at this. You know, if you want to ask me, that's fine. But I'll just wrap up by saying in the movie Lost Highway by David Lynch, the casting of Bill Pullman and Robert Loggia also produces occult effects in that movie. And they're intentional. So the intentional placement of an actor or an actress can conjure these valances, these cultural valances. And it just goes to show you, Greg, how adroit these filmmakers are. You know, and again, just to reiterate, we talk about symbolism, themes, hidden numbers and backgrounds of movies that have esoteric meaning. When you're paying attention to these movies and watching them, pay attention to the actors and actresses in them, because sometimes their placement goes well beyond typecasting and their casting can be very occult in nature. You'll find it in The Matrix Reloaded, you'll find it in Lost Highway, and you'll certainly find it in Star Wars Episode Seven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. There are just many layers to the onion. And you also have a section where you talk about Disney and the occult. And I do think the examination of Disney films is really interesting. We've been down that road. But you talk a bit about the geometry of the Epcot Center. You even bring up John Dee, and he's such an interesting figure We've talked about him here in the context of his channelings and his influence with Queen Elizabeth. And of course, we've talked about his connection to 007. We talked about that with you last time. But outside of cinematic references, can you tell us about your thoughts on John Dee in general? Does Freemasonry use anything from the Kia Solomon or anything from Dee? Oh, absolutely. And this is just such a fascinating talking point. I'm so glad you brought this up. Right. John Dee is a very interesting character. He's Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer. He was a mathematician. He was well ahead of his time. He did a lot of work with navigation, mathematics. You know, I mean, he's a real Renaissance man. And you're absolutely right. He was involved with aspiring with people like Francis Walsingham, Giordano Bruno. And of course, when he went, wrote these espionage correspondences to Queen Elizabeth, he signed them 007007. The symbol or sigil was supposed to be eyeglasses, meaning he was her eyes in the field and, you know, that the correspondence was for her eyes only. This is a talking point that I took on in the first book, Cinema Symbolism. I talked about the whole influence, the occult influence upon Ian Fleming and with John Dee. And I'll get to Walt Disney in a minute because that's fascinating. Hmm. I mean, you know, if you think the Ian Fleming stuff, 
comes from the world of you can't make this up. The Epcot Center and John D really comes from the world of you can't make this stuff up. Freemasonry, yeah, sure. You get into John D's library, he conjured demons and angels. He called this Enochian magic. And, you know, he had a language based on this called Enochian. I often get asked, the whole thesis of my first book, The Royal Arch of Enoch, was to document this historical anomaly going on where this high degree ritual being developed as part of the Counter-Reformation in the 1740s, 1750s was incorporating components and elements of the Book of Enoch, of the lost Ethiopian Book of Enoch, which was off the history pages at that time. The Book of Enoch didn't turn up until 1773 when James Bruce returned to Europe with a couple copies from Europe, or excuse me, returned to Europe with a couple copies from Ethiopia. And even still, they weren't translated until around 1812 into English. So, I mean, you know, where could this Anakian source material have come from? John Dee is a likely candidate. He could have possessed a copy of the Book of Enoch or perhaps an annotated edition of it. I mean, he develops this, you know, language of talking to angels and demons. I mean, he calls it Enochian. I mean, of course, and we know in the Book of Enoch, Enoch is interacting with angels and demons. So, you know, where did Dee get this from, considering that the Book of Enoch was lost in history at this time? So, you know, Dee could have certainly, he had this huge library. So Dee could have definitely possessed a copy of the Book of Enoch. And it's interesting also to note that one of the people involved with Dee spying was Sir Walter Riley, of all people. And in Riley's History of the World, he actually mentions that the Book of Enoch had an astrological book in it. I mean, how the hell does Walter Raleigh know this? And of course, he's getting this information from his fellow spy master, Dr. John Dee. So that only adds fuel that Dee, you know, was a likely source for this lost Book of Enoch. Fascinating character. I'll just wrap up on this. You know, it's something I talk about in the book. And again, it comes from the world of you can't make this stuff up in his monus hieroglyphic. He talks about how God operates. He talks about God, you know, on this vortex. One plus two plus three plus four are all positive numbers. Five, six, seven, eight are negative numbers. Nine is a null number. And he gets into how God created nature. And he says that the number, the alchemical number that God used to create nature, create the universe is the number 252. It's geometric perfection. Fast forward 500 years later. A mathematician named Buckminster Fuller is designing Epcot Center. He is known as the Benjamin Franklin of the Space Age. And Buckminster Fuller published numerous mathematical treaties. And as he was doing this, Dee was unbeknownst to him. He probably wasn't familiar, almost I'm certain he wasn't familiar with the works of John Dee. And he writes this huge mathematical treatise where he says, I figured out how God operates. He uses a plus one, plus two, plus three, and a negative five, negative six, negative seven, negative eight in this equilibrium vortex. D called this consumata, ties in with the union of opposites. And Fuller's interesting because he's the guy who designed Epcot Center and, you know, it's geometric perfection. And anyway, 500 years later, Buckminster Fuller actually comes up with the same number as D. He said the way God operates is the number 252. And once you discover this and once you decode the mathematical and occult meaning of this number, you'll get a better glimpse of how God operates. So you have this whole John D. Buckminster Fuller interplay going on with the creation of Epcot Center. Of course, the actual Disney movies have esoteric imagery as well. But Epcot Center, you know, is one of the most premier, well-known icons of Walt Disney. And to think that there is the guy who designed it, there is this clear mathematical influence with John D of all things with Buckminster Fuller. It's a fascinating study. If you're interested in this, I mean, I'm just scratching the surface of it, Greg, by all means, read Cinema Symbolism too, because I open the Walt Disney chapter with this whole breakdown of John D, 
his occult mathematics and how it ties into Buckminster Fuller 500 years later with the Epcot Center. It's a fascinating study. It really is. And these guys are always intriguing to me. I guess you have to have a pretty deep understanding of the code of reality if you're trying to jailbreak the material construct or explore that deeper game to reality that isn't necessarily on the surface. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly what these guys were doing was trying to deconstruct the material world and work on this divine plane. And D claims to have figured this out. And you'll find the symbolism in a lot of his front pieces with the rare navigational mathematical treaty. You'll notice on the one side, there's four things going up and then there's another set of four. And then you have Lady Occasion or Lady Fortuna pointing to the horizon. That ties into the number nine because nine is always on the horizon. It's a palindromic number. Probably didn't pronounce that correctly. I'd have to go pull up the book to get this correct. But, you know, all, all the mathematical numbers, it's 18, one plus eight is nine you know, 27, two plus seven is nine. It's that series of numbers that creates this horizon. And D and four said nine is a null number. It's a nothing number. And this is why you get it in language, you know, words like nothing or nine in Germany or nada and niente or niente in Russian. It's, it's all this interplay with the number nine. And you'll find on that front piece that, you know, Lady Fortuna is, Lady Occasion, Lady Fortuna is pointing at the horizon. And it's because nine is a null number. And you get into this whole thing of one plus two plus three plus four are the positive numbers, five, six, seven, eight are the negative numbers. And D and Fuller both claim that once you figure this out and you work the number 252 in, you could actually begin to think like God. And again, it's a fascinating study. By all means, check out Cinema Symbolism too. And the fact that it actually ties into Walt Disney and the Epcot Center even makes this more interesting. Right. We are so conditioned kind of to think about numbers in sets of 10. And I guess it's kind of the wrong way to go about it because when you think about nine as a null number, it seems really unbalanced at first thought because you're thinking about sets of 10. And I don't know, there's probably a much better way to teach math to people. Well, yeah, I mean, if you get into Pythagorean mathematics, 10 is the number of divinity. 10 is the number of God. And it's interesting that D and Fuller worked on the numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, and the numbers 5, 6, 7, 8, and then 9 being nothing. And again, it ties into what D called consummata, the union of opposites, male, female, light, dark, sun, moon. And the number 252 revolved around all this. This was like sort of the number of creation. And again, what makes this so fascinating is Dee is talking about this in the 1500s. And Buckminster Fuller, the renowned mathematician, is talking about this 500 years later, saying almost the exact same thing. So you had two guys separated by 500 years who are considered geniuses, Renaissance men of their time, coming up with the same equation. And again, like I said, if you're interested in this, you know, it's really deep material. And I know I'm mispronouncing those words. It's palindromic. It's numbers, you know, 274554. These palindromic pairs that are the number nine that always puts it on the horizon. And you'll find the symbolism encoded in this D frontispiece from his treatise on navigation. And I get into this whole breakdown in cinema symbolism too, because it actually does tie into Walt Disney of all things. So, you know, definitely check out the book. Like I said, I'm kind of scratching the surface on it. I don't want to get into a mathematical lecture here, but it is without <laughs> question, Greg, I don't dispute it. A fascinating subject. And like I said, if you think the whole John D influence on Ian Fleming is out of this world and comes from the world of can't make this stuff up, the John D influence on Buckminster Fuller will just literally blow your mind away. Mm-hmm. 
It will, man. And you break down, like I said, several Disney films and the older stories that they're based on, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White. But one I hoped we could get into in a little bit of depth is The Lion King, because I recently was getting into a very uh, deep lecture from Jordan Peterson about The Lion King as a retelling of the Osiris myth. Really interesting. Can you talk to us about those parallels and how that myth really does seem to be the heart of the film? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, The Lion King is just, I mean, it was, this was the second highest grossing movie of 1994 behind Forrest Gump. Loads of parallels in that movie with the Egyptian Osirian cycle and the Shakespeare play Hamlet as well. You have a whole solar allegory going on. I mean, of course, this is resurrecting Osiris and Horus, his solar heir. You find this with Mustafa, who is clearly the Osiris character, who is murdered by his brother-in-law or his brother in this movie, who is the Set or Typhon character, who is Scar. And then you have the whole solar heir, which would be Horus. And of course, this is Simba. And I, I just love the whole, you know, you have this incredible solar allegory going on where it's the Pride Lands, it's the death and rebirth of the sun. When the sun is in the Pride Lands, the Pride Lands in Africa are, you know, healthy, they're growing, they're very vibrant. Once Osiris or Mustafa is killed and Horus or Simba flees, the Pride Lands fall into a state of decay, death, think winter, think of the movie Excalibur when King Arthur goes into a comatose state and he becomes impotent and he's reduced to the chair. The entire countryside is turned into a wasteland. This is because the sun is missing. We know they are a solar family, the lion, and of course, Mustafa and Simba. I mean, the lion is a symbol for the sun. This comes from the constellation of Leo the lion, which is the soul house of the sun. And of course, Set is darkness personified. Osiris is light. You know, Horus is light. You have the whole thing where what are the three stations of the sun? The sun rises in the east. It's at midday in the south and it sets in the west. Where's the one station that the sun can never go in? It's in the north. And this is exactly explained in the movie, in The Lion King, when Mustafa is explaining to Simba darkness. He says, what's that over there? He says, oh, that's the elephant graveyard. He said, that's in the north. He said, we don't go there. That's off limits. We never go into the north. And of course, that's because that's the place where the sun can never go is the north. I mean, that's very adroit. That's very well done by the filmmakers. So we have this whole solar allegory. And of course, Osiris gets killed off. Simba comes back as the resurrected Horus, defeats the dark evil lord, which of course is Scar. This would be the set character, the lion as the sun Christ figure. Look no further than the Harry Potter story as well, where the symbol for Gryffindor is the lion. Harry Potter is the Christ figure again, much like Horus doing battle with the dark evil lord. This would be Set. What's the symbol for Set? The python or snake. What's the symbol of his arch enemy? You know, Slytherin. This is Lord Voldemort. We turn to the Chronicle of Narnia. Aslan, Leo the lion, is doing battle with what? Perpetual winter. This is the sun versus light. Manichaeanism, light versus darkness, good versus evil. This is all plays out very well in The Lion King, very occult, very esoteric. And you also have, I'll just wrap up on this, Greg, the interplay with the Shakespeare play Hamlet. You have the dark, evil Uncle Claudius figure, which would be Scar. You have the Horatio figure, which is Pumbaa and Simba, or Timba, I believe their names are, who are sort of the friends who help him out. Oh, Timon and Pumbaa. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I'm sorry. The a Kunta Matata characters. Thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, forgive me on that one. But yeah, you have the whole interplay going on with Hamlet as well. And of course, it's the same thing with Hamlet, you know, to be or not to be. Do I kill myself or do I kill Uncle Scar, you know, or my evil Uncle Claudius? And this is exactly what's going on in The Lion King, to be or not to be. 
can I just relax here? Or do I got to take my place and go back to the Pride Lands and take my proper seat where I should be? So yeah, loads of Egyptian solar symbolism going on in The Lion King. It's a great movie. It's very esoteric. I mean, it takes place in Africa. So I mean, right there, we're dealing with Egyptian symbolism. A decided Shakespeare influence on it as well. Great movie, very occult. I broke it down in the book and it was probably one of my favorite Disney movies to take on. Very esoteric, very enlightening. Yeah, I agree. I think it is probably my favorite childhood Disney movie and those layers just make it all the more meaningful. And you mentioned Harry Potter. That is a section of the book that I really love. Those movies take up a huge chunk of cinema symbolism too. Obviously, there's a lot to parse out there. You talked about a little bit of it. And in a big way, it does mirror those same recurring themes we see in so many of these films. But what else do you find interesting about the symbolism of the Harry Potter franchise in particular? Yeah, absolutely. This was something that I had originally planned on doing for the first movie book, but I just ran out of time. You're absolutely right, Craig. I mean, here we go again. We have the hero's journey, the hero being plucked from the commonplace to go battle with a dark, evil lord. Think Frodo Baggins and Lord of the Rings. You know, think Luke Skywalker and Star Wars. I mean, here we go. Harry Potter, again, invested as the Christ figure who's going to save the wizarding world from the dark, evil lord. The symbol for Gryffindor, his house is the sun, the lion, doing battle with perpetual darkness, the serpent, Set, Typhon, Lord Voldemort. You know, I love you have the Hermes Trismegistus wizard archetype, really the great incarnation of that with Albus Dumbledore. He turns up in other films as well. Naturally, think Gandalf the Grey in Lord of the Rings, Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, the old gray beard. This is, you know, the wizard, the hermit card of the tarot, this archetype. Very interesting Masonic symbolism going on. I say in the book that I'm 100% convinced, whether she knows it or not, Rowling has this Masonic influence going on, or she, at least subconsciously. I don't know if she's aware of it or not. I love at the beginning of the second movie where the Masons are coming over. and It's this great meeting that's going to take place. And the mother's running around in her apron. And, you know, we can't screw up. The Masons are coming over. And this is career advancement. And this is, you know, going to be wonderful. And, of course, this conjures this idea of Masons pulling the string being puppet masters. This is at the very beginning of the second movie. This is Chamber of Secrets. And again, this is reiterated in all things in the first movie where you have the Albus Dumbledore, Hermes Trismegistus archetype. And if you're familiar with Royal Arch of Enoch mythology, you have this whole idea of Enoch creating the subterranean vault where he keeps his treasure in it. And this treasure vault is ultimately discovered by the Freemasons. And this treasure is restored back to mankind. And if you're familiar with the mythology and the philosophy of this ritual, this subterranean treasure vault where this tetragrammaton, where this great treasure is kept, is invaded by or discovered by two mythological characters prior to the Masons getting there. One is Hermes Trismegistus. You know, this is the Albus Dumbledore character who in the Masonic mythology, you, you understand, I just want the listeners to say you understand where I'm going with this in a minute. In the Masonic mythology, Hermes Trismegistus pronounces this magical word, this name of God, the Tetragrammaton, restores the seven liberal arts and sciences back to mankind. Then Pythagoras goes into the vault and pronounces the Tetragrammaton and restores mathematics back to mankind. In the Masonic High Degrees, this is the seventh degree in the York Rite and the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite. It's known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. And believe it or not, you have the Hermes Trismegistus archetype, Albus Dumbledore. And what does he have in the first movie? Well, he has a subterranean vault beneath Gringotts. Very Freemasonic, very Enochian. What does he keep there? Well, he keeps his magic there. He keeps this great treasure there. In fact, we don't even know what it is. It winds up being the philosopher's stone of all things. But we take this even further. I mean, what is the number of this vault? 
well, of all things, it's 713 of all things. A clear reference to the 7th degree in the York Rite, a clear reference to the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite. You cannot make that up. Very Freemasonic, very high degree Freemasonic, very occult. Harry Potter's movies are overloaded with esoteric symbolism. The number seven turns up. You will have interplay with the characters' numbers, with astrology and astronomy. Think Sirius Black. Sirius is the Egyptian dog star. His last name's Black. So what does he turn into? The black dog of all things. Bellatrix Lestrange. Bellatrix means warrior, you know, and of course she's the warrior for Lord Voldemort. Loads of esoteric imagery going on. I'm just scratching the surface on it. It was, like you said, a deep study in the book. I was real happy with the way the Harry Potter material came out. Again, this was something I wanted to take on in the first book, but ran out of time. I'll just wrap up and say all these movies, all the Harry Potter movies are microcosms of the Joseph Campbell monomyth, the hero's journey. You will find elements, components of that grand adventure in all the Harry Potter movies. If you're interested in Harry Potter, by all means, check out Cinema Symbolism too. I was really, really happy, Greg, with the way the breakdown came out. Right. Yeah, it is a really great breakdown. And you did bring up an interesting point just about J.K. Rowling herself or the overnight success of these books and films. I mean, they clearly speak to us in some type of way. And it does beg the question, did J.K. Rowling actually have all this context or was it subconscious? It almost seems too deliberate and too layered to not be somewhat intentional. And it gets into the idea of is this possibly the networking aspect of Freemasonry, if she did have that background? Or is it a natural subconscious mechanism where an artist taps into something primal and then it resonates with people and attracts them almost magnetically? It's, it's a hard thing to parse out. It is. I, Greg, I totally agree with you. I think in a lot of cases, it's very intentional. I mean, she clearly has some knowledge of this. I mean, in the book, she talks about Paracelsus. So she has some working of the occult. I don't know if the Freemasonic stuff, if that's conscious or subconscious, but it's there. You know, it's clearly there. And you're absolutely right. I mean, this ties into the whole notion of, I mean, when I do these breakdowns of these movies, don't get me wrong, I think this is very intentional. But you will find from time to time, occasionally, where maybe it is a coincidence. And how do you account for it? And then you're dealing with ideas related to the collective unconscious of Carl Gustav Jung, Plato's theory of forms. You know, is it unintentional? And like you said, does it just draw the psyche to this material, regardless of the creator's intent? And certainly, you know, movies are artwork. They are a creation. And when these filmmakers, producers, writers, script writers, filmmakers, cinematographers are crafting these things, are they being influenced subconsciously? It's very possible. I think it can be the case in some times. But for me, I am 100% convinced that these symbols and this arcana, what Manly P. Hall would call the arcane arcanorum, something like that, you know, does permeate these things. And these people do seem to be familiar with this. And I think with Rawling, when you're getting into the Harry Potter stuff, clearly you have, I mean, I think she knows what she's doing. You have the whole Harry Potter Christ allegory, light versus darkness. I mean, he's killed, he's resurrected. You have the wizard archetype. Clearly she's drawing upon archetypal imagery. Like I said, think Obi-Wan Kenobi, think Gandalf the Grey. I mean, the character, you know, they all look alike. But, you know, with the Masonic stuff, I think she has a working knowledge of it. She may deny it, but it's there and, you know, it's irrefutable that it's there. And I'm convinced it's intentional, but who knows? Maybe she was just writing it and it somehow was her collective unconscious, the collective unconscious going to work on J.K. Rowling. I suppose that's very possible as well. Mm -hmm. And 
there's a, a motif that kind of comes up in this realm sometimes where people talk about gatekeepers in the media and that only certain people are allowed to rise to a certain level. J.K. Rowling obviously rose to one of those highest levels. And we're given this story of a struggling artist who started all this on the back of some napkins suddenly. And it's like, well, that could be some kind of cover story for an insider initiate's advantage that they don't want to necessarily disclose. Or that would make sense as a sudden stroke of some archetypical inspiration. But you're right. It's very layered and she clearly has some knowledge. So it's like, where did it come from? Did right. well, Where does the intentional portion start and where does the collective unconscious end Right, is really the question. And it's very hard to discern. But she did catch lightning in a bottle. And it's funny because it happens different ways for some people. You know, she happened to catch lightning in a bottle and the books took off and she became very famous very quickly. You look at someone like Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming was writing the James Bond stories for 10 years. And really, before anyone noticed, it was 10 years before those books really started to catch on. And when they caught on, that's when Hollywood came knocking and the first movie was being made and Fleming died. Hmm. He never really lived to see this James Bond creation, this huge worldwide phenomenon that was created off his stories. You look at someone like H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote these stories during his lifetime and died very young. He, I think he was 46 when he died. And the stories during his lifetime really never did anything. It was until after he died, quite some time, I might add. I think it was until the 1950s. I think he died in 36, 37. So it wasn't really until the 1950s that his work caught on and started people started paying attention. Edgar Allan Poe was another one during his lifetime. I mean, people read them, but it wasn't until years after his death that this cult of Edgar Allan Poe turned up. Mm -hmm. So for different people, it happens different ways. Who knows? Who knows if there's a hidden hand at work? But, you know, people achieve it different ways, sometimes during their lifetime, sometimes after they're dead. I guess we'll never know why or how. But I think on a lot of times, this material, this esoteric imagery is intentional. I mean, I say it in the book. I use it. I have hidden symbols in my book. So these people know what they're doing and it's intentional. But who knows? Maybe the collective unconscious does come into play and work its magic in some instances. I think that's very possible. Yeah, well said. It isn't all black and white. And of course, networking plays an element in almost all aspects of life. But sometimes I think that attitude of, oh, well, you have to be part of the club is something that people use to kind of justify their own lack of success sometimes. It's kind of a harsh truth, but I've seen it happen. And to get back into the content here, when it comes to Harry Potter, I thought this was pretty interesting. One unique element is the Quidditch game. It's actually quite deeper than I realized, apparently, and the Golden Snitch being a perfect representation of the Egyptian solar disk. And the game itself is actually an analogy for that quest for enlightenment, right? I mean, you're chasing the light, so to speak. Right, right. That's absolutely right. If you look at the Golden Snitch, it's actually the Egyptian, it's the winged solar disk from Egypt. And again, what it's doing is, right, I mean, to catch it is to win. And it's chasing light. It's chasing enlightenment. And again, what it is doing, it's very adroit. It's very esoteric. It's very well played. It's very subtle. It's the Horus sun symbolism that it's investing Potter with. He's the solar Christ archetype. He's the savior. He's going to do battle with the dark evil figure. And the whole Quidditch game and the, the golden snitch, the quest to, to capture the golden snitch is pursuing light. It's pursuing wisdom. And of course, it's Potter who always winds up catching it of all things. And I, I just thought that was a great 
symbol to use. If you look at that golden snitch with the little wings, it looks identical to the winged Egyptian solar disc, the symbol for the sun. It's Horus. And again, it's the Harry Potter qua Horus qua Christ qua sun allegory, savior archetype. And it's just a wonderful esoteric symbol that Rowling and the filmmakers are further using to invest Potter with this savior archetypal image, figure, character. And yeah, that symbol of the golden snitch, very important and very symbolic. No doubt about that. Yeah, man. It's just really great because it really is the game within the game. When I saw the movie and I was just thinking of it on a surface level, I was like, well, what's the point of all the other activities if all you have to do is catch this little golden flying thing? And that's the analogy because all the other things that the rest of the people on the team are doing that stuff is kind of just a distraction because getting that golden snitch is what wins you the game. So the parallel is like, you know, that's right. the busy nonsense of daily life when we really should be looking deeper at that game to truly win. You can't really win unless you reach Gnosis. So I, I just think it's fascinating. Absolutely. No, you're spot on with that. I mean, that's right. It's the quest for enlightenment wins you the game. The rest of it is just sort of perfunctory, you know, day-to-day nonsense. And You're right. To pursue enlightenment, to pursue Gnosis, that's what Potter does. And that allows him to go on ultimately to defeat Lord Voldemort and become like all these other guys, gets killed and resurrected. And there you have it. I mean, you know, your solar archetypal imagery right there on screen. No question about it. Very esoteric. Great analogy there with Quidditch. You're spot on with that. And just one more real question before we get into the wrap up stuff. But As far as Freemason symbols go in film, you mentioned the number 47 and how it signifies Masonic rulership, that it's an occult reference to the 47th proposition of Euclid or the Pythagorean theorem. How does this get into rulership and where do we see it represented in films? Well, right, right. The number 47 is, you're absolutely right, it represents something known as the Pythagorean theorem. And it's very Freemasonic. And you'll see it turn up, and it usually turns up correctly where there's a secret meeting taking place or something referencing the sun. The actual symbol is the Pythagorean theorem. It's known as the 47th proposition of Euclid. A squared plus B squared always equals C squared. Solar. The one side is Osiris, the sun god. The other side is his virgin consort, Isis. And what is known as the hypotenuse, or C squared, represents a Horus. You'll find this embedded in Washington, D.C., with the Federal Triangle, the White House to the Washington Monument, up to the Capitol. The hypotenuse is Pennsylvania Avenue, Pennsylvania, the Keystone State, a Royal Arch reference. Save that for another day. In cinema, I love the one where in the last Star Wars movie, very Freemasonic, you have the First Order, you know, who hang out on the uh, Starkiller base. There's a whole occult storyline going on in Star Wars Episode Seven. It's very Gnostic. You have your Gnostic rebels of Ray and Finn. You have your oppressive Christians, the First Order, who are in the church praying to the Demiurge, who's an illusion, very Gnostic, the Demiurge ruling the false world, the material world, but he's an illusion. Very Wizard of Oz-ish, again, with the giant you know, figure that's an illusion. There you would be your oppressive Christians. I mean, Kylo Ren wields the crucifix as his weapon, the symbol of Christ. These guys want to squash out the rebels, the Valentinian Gnostics, you want to call these guys. As Christians, they use Starkiller Base. What's the premier, you know, Christ, the sun, Horus, what power Starkiller Base? The sun, that's what they draw their power on. At the end of the movie, because it's the sun, the rebels are in a secret meeting divulging how to destroy Starkiller Base. They're talking about it being powered by the sun. They're in a secret meeting, very Masonic-like. 
So, of course, we have a solar oscillator where all the Masonic solar energy is being harnessed. Well, what precinct is that in? Precinct 47, of all things, very Freemasonic, complete solar reference there, completely contextually based because it's in a secret meeting and you have this solar allegory going on with Starkiller base. Very esoteric, very occult, very Freemasonic. Star Wars Episode 7 is something I will definitely be taking on in Cinema Symbolism 3. Right on, man. Yeah, that Star Wars Precinct 47 example was the exact one I was hoping you would hit on because I do think it's interesting. And clearly in the context with the details, they meant it to be intentional. And so (laughs) it's worth pointing out. But man, this has been a really great time. I'm glad we could take some themes from the book and from film and talk about how they relate to the big picture. As things start to wrap up here, what's next for you, man? Yeah, absolutely. Well, for starters, Craig, thank you for having me on the Higher Side Chats. Third time's a charm. I loved it. I love your podcast, and I look forward to coming back. Right now, I am actually I'm actually outlining three books right now, uh, Cinema Symbolism 3, a book on Freemasonry, and a sequel to a work of fiction that I just completed not too long ago. The work of fiction is called A Pact with the Devil. It is actually, as we are doing this interview, it is with the editor right now, This book will be out in December of this year, 2017. It is my first work of fiction. I am very excited about it. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll do something on that. Who knows? Even if something's short. But I'm really excited about it and we'll see what happens with it. And uh, it'll be out, like I said, in a couple months. My first work of fiction. And then after that, it'll probably be another book on Freemasonry. I've begun Cinema Symbolism 3. I've begun outlining a sequel to this. But my gut feeling is it's going to be another book on Freemasonry. It's called Freemasonry and the Path to Babylon. I've already started it, and that's probably still a year or two away, but that'll probably be my next project. Mm, Beautiful. And just to remind people about your website and where to get your current and previous work, what should they know? Yeah, absolutely, Greg. Very easy to find on the internet. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV, and that's just my website. Uh, it's www.robertwsullivan, the letter I, the letter V.com for the fourth. www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Links to buy the book, updated events and appearances, links to my social media. Follow me on Twitter. You know, I'm constantly updated with events, appearances, shows like this will be on there. Links to buy my books. You can get the paperback, you can get the ebook. All right there. Very easy to navigate www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Boom. There it is. Boom. There it is. (laughs) Right on. Well, thanks again. You really do understand this stuff at a level that most people do not. So kudos to you, man, and keep at it. Well, thank you, Greg, for having me on. I thought the show was tremendous again, and uh, I look forward to coming on with uh, Pact with the Devil, Freemasonry and the Path to Babylon, Cinema Symbolism 3. We'll do it all again. And uh, it's a tremendous show. You're one of the best at it. Uh, I really love your podcast. I listen to them often, and thank you again for having me on. Right on. Thanks for being here. Kind words, and I do look forward to future shows. So I'll see you later. Enjoy the rest of your day, man. Thank you, Craig. All right. Abracadabra and hallelujah, ladies and gentlemen. Robert W. Sullivan IV coming in hot with Cinema Symbolism 2. Something I always think will be a staple for the Higher Side Chats is checking in with guys like Robert and Jay Dyer and other people who are making film breakdowns their specialty because it's a great gig and i really think we see a lot of ritual in film a lot of energy generation around archetypes and symbols that we don't even really understand agendas pushed it's something to keep an eye on but it was really nice to tackle a few films and filmmakers that are off the beaten path from what's typically discussed nice to talk about alan moore 
It was also nice to get Robert just a little outside of the film realm and get some insights into the broader depths of his knowledge. Clearly, he does know a lot about a lot, and getting him to elaborate on John Dee was a pleasant surprise, I would say. So I think this is a fun episode. But something I woke up to this morning was this Vegas shooter. And of course, this really isn't the time and place to break it down. I'm trying to get Ole to come back on and talk to me about it. But there's just so many strange things right off the bat. The guy's name is Stephen Paddock, which Paddock means corral or contain in a fenced enclosure, exactly like a concert. It takes place on 10-1-2017 at 10 p.m. Numerologically, they say zero has no value and you add up the numbers in the grouping. So we're looking at 1-1-1 because 2017-2-1-7 is 10. 10 would be 1. We're looking at a strange arrangement that basically is 10 0, 1, 10 at 10. The festival was the Route 91, 9 and 1, 10, Harvest Festival. Harvest Festival, people. This guy, Stephen Paddock, is an employee of a company that became the defense contractor Lockheed Martin. Ding, 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 red flag. His father was a bank robber on the FBI's most wanted list or something. I believe he was arrested, but... There's going to be a paper trail for this family, whether it's through Lockheed Martin or his father. There's also pictures of him in a pussy hat during the protests that were happening. Who knows if that was a hired job or something? I I mean, I can't say much about that. But again, it does check some of those Ole Demingard boxes. Multiple shooters were reported at the beginning. Reports were coming in that shots were fired at New York, New York, and the Bellagio. And New York, New York is a 20-minute walk from Mandalay Bay. That's not very close, especially in the Vegas chaos. There's two different windows on two entirely different parts of the 32nd floor knocked out. One person wouldn't have done that. Why would he take 10 guns? Like, he snuck 10 guns and ammo up to his room, just one lone shooter. Even Dan Blitzerian, he tweeted to the LVPD his cell phone footage of a shooter in a lower window of the Mandalay Bay. People have also sent me interesting diagrams that show how the whole events unfolded like the eye in the pyramid with the shooter as the eye up top on a 32nd floor and the pyramid coming down, the cone coming down to cover the area that was riddled with bullets apparently. I mean, these points in aggregate, whether you put more stock in one thing or another, are interesting. And then you got the follow the money element, because there was this anonymous poster who said, be careful in Vegas, there will be an event to help push the narrative that large high security events are not safe. It's called the High Incident Project. If the plan is successful, Nevada will pass laws requiring metal detectors, backscatter machines, and all casinos. Next, the federal law will happen for any large crowded places at all. Schools, concerts, whatever, government buildings, they're all going to need this new equipment. Well, this anonymous poster says that the companies OSI and Shertoff make these machines. And in 2020, these companies are going to merge. They're going to become one. And the CEOs are working with this guy, Sheldon Adelson. I didn't really know anything about Sheldon Adelson. My wife actually was doing some looking in onto this guy and found that he was one of the biggest opponents of Hillary Clinton over the Whitewater scandal. A couple articles actually used the word nemesis. And then right before the election in September, 
This guy, Sheldon Adelson, comes out in a big way in support of Clinton, saying, Trump is so dangerous that we really need to ignore little scandals like Whitewater, and I'm fully in support of Hillary. Well, that's kind of strange, because these gun control type of events seem to come from the left side. So we have this guy, Sheldon Adelson, who is involved in making money off the security devices that would be implemented because of events like this. And sure enough, Hillary Clinton, she rolled out a couple of gun control tweets this morning, right on cue. It does just seem like a little bit too convenient of a case of problem reaction solution. Your left hand creates the event, your right hand sells the devices for security in these types of situations. Now, a lot of those details come from an anonymous post, but I think it is pretty sound. I don't know. That is a wild tangent. It's just so on my mind right now. And that's just what I've picked up on or been sent in the first couple hours. And it does check a lot of those same old boxes that make us wonder. And as for this show, to get back to it, I really was interested in the occult casting aspect. I think there's a lot of meat on that bone. I bet Robert could do a whole book just on that element. I also think the gatekeeper element is huge. Does someone like J.K. Rowling actually just come up with a saga like Harry Potter and it just goes viral in a completely natural sense and contains all this deep esoteric stuff? I think it's unlikely. People have to be told about this on TV. Oh, this great new book series everyone's talking about. Got to get her on the Today Show, on the Tonight Show. I mean, that's how things are made popular, right? I actually remember it being weird that a book series was so popular. I remember thinking, this really hasn't happened before. Sure, if a movie comes out or HBO announces they're going to be making a show, people will go back and read the source material. But there was never a book series that everyone I knew was reading, not since Goosebumps. So I did think it was a little odd. People I knew who were just never compelled to read a book, suddenly they were obsessed with this series. And then when you break down that symbolism and the depth of all of it, and that it's some retelling of the same archetypal story. She had to have some kind of esoteric knowledge. And if she had the knowledge, I think that makes her a good candidate for being in the club. You could also say the gatekeepers are just curators looking for things that do contain what they're looking for. And then they bring that person up. It's hard to know exactly the order in which it happens. But it's just too coincidental for these major breakout successes to be archetypal stories, to encode myths the way they do. It's just strange, right? Maybe our subconsciouses are just attracted to those things, like moths to flames. Maybe it's a soup of all these things, but it's worth examining in that regard. And it's not really to say that there's anything wrong with that, I guess. Just that the highest heights are reserved for things that serve a purpose beyond just entertainment. They embody something. At least that's my opinion. They're both selected and attractive because of what they encode. It's just a nice thing to stay educated on. The more movies we hear analyzed, the better we get at picking stuff out, honing in on that skill set. Much like the way these lone shooter scenarios seem to follow the same template, the more familiar we get with it, the better we get at analyzing it. So, power to the people. I also wanted to remind you guys about THC Live at the Ice House in Pasadena along with Tinfoil Hat. October 10th, it's only 10 bucks. Come out and see me so I don't feel stupid. A lot of these comics have been around for a long time. They've got audiences. People come out to see them, and it's a real risk for me. I don't do live events, so I'm already kind of uncomfortable with it. And 
it's a bit risky to just hope that a lot of people are going to come out and support you. So my life is in your hands, dudes. My life is in your hands. Also, as always, sign up for Plus just because you want to hear more from the higher side. It's an extra hour to every show. This week, we got into the Joker's embodiment of the Hanged Man tarot card in multiple films, tarot's relationship to Kabbalah and how they both relate to Freemasonry and Robin Hood, magic masonry in the church, archetypes of the spaghetti western genre, the shining and the moon landing, and how Robert's background as a Freemason colors the lens in which he views the moon landings. Not that it's good, bad, wrong, or right. It's just interesting because we hear Freemasonry thrown around so often in regards to the moon landings and the astronauts and whatever might have happened that it's interesting to hear what a 32nd degree Freemason thinks of that event. We also got into Eyes Wide Shut. How can you not? And then in the same vein as some of the moon landing stuff, I asked Robert how we can rectify political and historical figures who have abused power and caused suffering being Freemasons or belonging to certain groups and not condemning the whole group itself. It's an interesting thing. Another real nugget of information I enjoyed was the relationship between the original Illuminati and the Jesuits, and of course the Warriors as a Gnostic perspective. So just a lot of interesting stuff, as always. You're already listening to the first hour. It's five bucks a month to get the whole show. Help me out here. Help yourself. Are you not entertained? Either way, thanks for sticking around, and hopefully you find a reason worth signing up for. But I'm going to get out of here. Please come to the Ice House on October 10th. Hopefully I'll see you there. Your move, occult casters, cinema sorcerers, and makers of that sweet, sweet 8mm magic. Your fucking move. Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling them out on TAC. Uncovering secrets and conspiracies Everybody's looking for something Some of them want to use you Some of them want to get used by you Some of them want to abuse you Some of them want to be abused Abuse